Hello everyone, my name is Anusha Ghosh and welcome back to another episode with Seeking Refuge. Today I have here with me Christopher Loris. Christopher Loris is the former mayor of Rutland, a small rural town in Vermont, and is known for his work in welcoming Syrian refugees. Mr. Loris, how are you doing today? I'm doing just ducky, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for making the time in your schedule to speak with me. This really means a lot. I'm just happy to do it. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you and your listeners will get some value out of this conversation. So my first question is, can you tell us a little more about your career background, especially in relation to politics and refugees? Oh boy. Okay, well, career background, I would say was driven and has been driven and continues to be driven by a a real affinity for public service. That's why after I left, uh, after I graduated college, I joined the military as a uh, helicopter pilot, maintenance test pilot. You know, I served in the military for 10 years, came back home to Vermont, and just had an itch I needed to scratch for public service. I ran for the Rutland City Board of Aldermen, which is the city council, and was elected six months after I moved back home after being gone for 10 years, fully recognizing that a lot of people thought they were voting for my Uncle Pete because he had been on the Board of Aldermen before, and in politics, name recognition is king. Having served then for 10 years as a member of the Board of Aldermen, during that time I also spent a couple of years in Montpelier as a member of the Vermont State Legislature and couldn't get out of there quick enough. reason was because I seemed to be more drawn to both local politics as well as legislative politics and decided that because our city was struggling with a number of issues that I felt I may have said something to offer as mayor. So in 2007, ran for mayor of the city. One of the two cities in the state of Vermont, Burlington and Rutland, have what are called strong mayor forms of government, where the mayor is the chief executive officer. And in Rutland, there's no city manager, no chief administrative officer. So the mayor really is the the chief executive officer and makes the decisions for the city, you know, with the advice and consent on a number of issues from the Board of Aldermen. But because it's a strong mayor form of government, the mayor has the latitude to pursue a lot of initiatives. And one of the initiatives I chose to pursue was to provide a home to those seeking refuge from the war in Syria. It was simply the right thing to do in 2015-16 and additionally it was the right thing to do for the city because we we were suffering and struggling from decades and decades of population decline and really had workforce issues so you know it was a win-win it was an opportunity to provide a new home for individuals fleeing war and fleeing for their lives and that was doing the right thing, as well as supporting my own community with hopefully a growth in population and families and people who are going to make Rutland their home. 
Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, that's incredible, your mission and the work that you've been able to do, both in the army and as a mayor. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, we we had been asked a number of times, why pursue refugee resettlement? Aside from the, you know, the, the moral obligation we had to provide a home to people fleeing war. So back in like, boy, 2009, 2010 timeframe, when the subprime mortgage crisis and the housing crisis hit the United States. Vermont was relatively immune to all the problems that happened in 2008 mm-hmm. with the, when the economy crashed due to real estate issues. Mm-hmm. We did not have a lot of foreclosures up here except for absentee landlords who had three to four unit apartment homes. And these out-of-state landlords basically walked away from a lot of two and three family homes and four family homes. And the city became a de facto property manager for all these neglected properties, some vacant, some with people. And the city attorney and I, Andrew Costello, were really vexed about how to remedy this problem where the city was picking up trash, the city was, you know, dealing with water being turned off in in apartments and how to deal with the individuals who were squatting in those places. And the city attorney said, you know what we need to do? We need to go find some group of people someplace else in the world that want to move to Rutland, Vermont. And this was in like 2010 timeframe, 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. And basically what Andrew said was, we need to reinvigorate our community the way the Southern and Eastern Europeans built the community at the turn of the century mm-hmm. back in the early, early 1900s. Because, you know, that's what made Rutland the community it is, was all of the, the Italians, the Sicilians, uh, the Poles, uh, the pretty significant Jewish population moved here as well. And like me, the Greeks, we you know, transformed the Rutland community at the turn of the century and grew the population and made it an economic and cultural powerhouse in the state. And then it began to wane just after World War II. So Andrew's idea was, let's get a bunch of families here, fill up these vacant homes. Mm -hmm. We've got a very, very low unemployment rate, so we needed bodies as well. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, the impetus for why it was a good idea from the Rutland City's perspective we didn't know how to do anything (laughs) and we didn't pursue it we said well that'd be a really good idea Mm -hmm. and then in 2015 during the beginning of the 2016 presidential election we had donald j who said he would absolutely shut the door and not allow people from syria into the united states and at that point more than 20 republican governors said the same thing, parroted the same, you know, racist and non-humanitarian language. And our governor, Peter Shumlin, said, hey, Vermont is going to open its doors to these refugees. And that's all the governor said at a press conference to, you know, 
battle the narrative that was coming out of the presidential campaign and a lot of other uh, Republican governor's mansions. And the next day, you know, I shot off a text to the governor saying, hey, let's let's have a conversation. And I very, very seldom texted him directly. He usually went through his, his staff. But that was important enough to reach out directly. The next morning, you know, I was meeting with him and his chief of staff, and we developed a strategy to reach out to our legislative delegation in, in D.C., specifically Senator Patrick Leahy, who just retired after being in the Senate for, for nearly 50 years. And we got in touch with the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program, who were had been operating for decades and knew what they were doing in Burlington, Vermont, and pitched, hey, why don't you create a satellite location down here in Rutland and see if we can provide a home to the you know families and individuals who are fleeing the war in Syria. And we um, went through a vetting process, determined that Rutland would be a good home based on three key factors. One, available housing, which we have because our population peaked in 1970 at 20,000 people, and now we're down to 15,000, but still have the housing stock for 20,000 people. So we had available housing. Likewise, we have a very low unemployment rate, so we had available entry-level jobs. And the third factor was the uh, you know quantifiable factor was whether or not there was the right type and enough English language learning capacity in the community, either through community college or Vermont adult learning. And it was determined, yep, we've got that as well. So we had the jobs, the housing, and the language learning capacity, which were quantifiable. And then the most important piece was the non-quantifiable desire by the community to host and provide a home, provide support for people fleeing for their lives. And a volunteer organization grew up purely organically over the course of 24 hours. You know, I'm not a social media guy at all still, but and my wife was watching and was part of this group. So Jude was watching this group organically create itself that night of people saying, hey, this is a great idea to what can we do? Mm-hmm. And Rutland Welcomes was born out of out of that discussion. And, you know, no one in city government had anything to do with creating that group of volunteers uh, who were very active, uh, very outcomes driven, and they were successful in creating an activist organization to support refugees, not because of anything any public officials were doing, it was really in spite of what public officials were doing, including myself. Just huge, huge volunteer effort, people who are super passionate. And that, frankly, was the most important piece, according to the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program Executive Director Emil Amirzanovich, herself a refugee mm-hmm. from the Bosnian conflict, and giving Rutland the nod when there were four or five other communities 
in the state that wanted uh, to host refugees as well. So found ourselves in a really, really super fortunate position in 15 and 16 until the orange cat got elected mm-hmm. and in January of 2017 shut the program down after we after we received the first three families. Mm-hmm. And you know that that was un, to say it was unfortunate would be the understatement of the century. But we did provide a home to those three families and just now this week another Syrian family is coming to Rutland, we just found out, from Amila, and they're going to rekindle the refugee resettlement program for Syrians in Rutland. And that's following the Afghan refugees' arrival last year. So after putting the skids on refugee resettlement in Rutland for five years, the Front Refugee Resettlement Program you know, mm-hmm. cranked, it back, cranked it back up once the administration changed and we had people able to arrive. Right. Like, that's beautiful. And, yeah, it's really unfortunate that, like, initially you were unable to get more than three families. But, you know, it's, it's still very impactful. And um, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And I was wondering, so, like, the people of Rutland, I remember when I was reading articles about you, there seemed to be like this divided response in the Rutland community, like people were for the refugee initiative and then there were people that weren't. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the people of Rutland responded to your initiative of welcoming refugees. Well, you know, I shared with you the the compassion and the goodness within this community when the people who are part of Rutland Welcomes and the entire support structure embraced refugee resettlement. Uh, Unfortunately, they weren't in the majority, and I had no idea that the majority of my neighbors would completely disagree with the decision and, frankly, responded in a non-humanitarian in pretty ugly way. Mm-hmm. Um, a another group was created called Rutland First, mm-hmm. which we know putting the, the word first after anything now is pretty thinly coded language for if you ain't white, you need not apply. And just like the old America First nativism, uh, nativist initiative back in the 1930s, this was very much the same. America first today, Rutland first is is uncoded language for foreigners need not show up. We don't want you. As a matter of fact, everybody can go back home. And there was a pretty significant subset of individuals who were just spewing all kinds of lies and misinformation, either intentionally or they really believe some of the happy horseshit that was being said throughout the entire country at that time about about refugees and specifically about the Muslim community. And Rutland really was a microcosm for the narrative and for the division 
that was happening within the entire United States. And that's not me saying that. I frankly didn't recognize it. But when the national media and frankly international media started showing up and they were the ones telling me, oh man, hey dude, you know, you, <laughs> Rutland is, Rutland is a story that is playing itself out on the national stage and international stage. And I didn't know it until those, those people told me. As a matter of fact, a NPR lead correspondent, Deb Amos, she came to Rutland to do a story and she was actually, Deb was in my office when Donald J uh, formally shut the door on refugee resettlement. You know, she and I heard it at the same time. We were trying to get a hold of our contacts at the same time to see if it really was going to happen. We all knew it was probably going to happen. But we, you know, Rutland was a hotbed in the center for national and international news around refugee resettlement, uh, nativism, and all the ugliness that was happening throughout the country, as well as all the compassion that were happening throughout the country. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we do this podcast is, you know, just to make it so that we can somehow break down the yeah. stereotypes that, you know, could follow international issues and refugeeism. And it's definitely hard to navigate, as as you know, I'm sure. Thank you so much for sharing that perspective. And I'm sorry that you did have to endure the backlash. Listen, Anusha, it was worth it. it was, you know, I, I said that sincerely and with all the honesty in the world that if I lost my job over refugee resettlement, good. It was, it, that was worth it to lose my job over that because it was the right frigging thing to do, period. And that's just, just the reality. No frigging job is worth not being able to look at myself in the mirror every morning. And, uh, that's the same way that the the individuals in Rutland, the people of Rutland, who I create some really strong friendships and relationships over. Got one of my best friends, you know, was the person who was one of the leaders. Well, two of my best friends uh, were were the leaders on Rutland Welcomes, Carol Tashi and Jenny Gardner, mm-hmm. and. So it's it's really the community and not me that deserves any type of kudos for you know for the initiative because without them without Rutland Welcomes it wasn't going to help it wasn't going to happen they the community the best of the community was on full full display and unfortunately the worst of community was as well what's really cool is there's a rutland city is a donut hole surrounded by the donut that's called rutland town two completely different municipalities and vermont's municipalities you know vermont government system is really screwy there's no true county forms of government at all so it's all local local communities and local municipalities so Rutland Town, there was a uh, Don Chaffee. He received the Activist of the Year Award by an organization called Act for America, 
which I think Southern Poverty Law Center characterizes as the most virulent anti-Muslim group in the entire in the entire country. Mm-hmm. And he received their national award for Citizen Activist of the Year, put on his tuxedo and went down to DC to get his award because even though he was a Rutland Town resident, they gave him credit for leading the charge to make sure my ass got kicked in the 2017 election, which mm-hmm. it did. I got absolutely smoked. Mm-hmm. Got 33, 32% of the vote, something like that. Got creamed. Mm-hmm. It was a drubbing. And so one of the leading anti-Muslim groups in the entire country gave this cat their highest achievement award because they gave him credit for beating me in the election not beating me because he didn't run. He, they gave him credit for making sure I was defeated. It isn't even a Rutland City resident. He's a Rutland Town resident. Mm-hmm. So even that, it shows that the entire Rutland County was either there were people who were super supportive throughout the county, and there were people who were very, you know, there were people who were opposed in the ugliest way to refugee resettlement as well. So as you said, Anusha, we we saw both sides of it here in Rutland. And for those national correspondents that called us a microcosm, oh, daddy, they were right. But yeah, it, uh, it, it was an ugly situation. And frankly, getting de-elected was probably the best thing that happened to me. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I I really like your point that even though, like, you know, making initiatives like this is difficult, especially in a divided society, like, you know, a step forward is, is, is worth it. And I truly think that you really made an impact in your community. And thank you for that, uh, even though I'm not from Rutland. I was also wondering, so you, you mentioned a little bit about how Rutland was a good fit for refugees because um, you offered multiple opportunities that could make it so that refugees could work themselves into American society, get jobs, and get housing. So I was wondering yeah. if you could talk more about when they got these jobs and when they were able to settle in. I know that when you were mayor, you were only able to get three Syrian families. Could you, like, if you have the information, talk about how these refugees economically and socially enriched your town? Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a really super good question. The story that I think demonstrates the difference that new Americans can make to any community mm-hmm. is the following. That uh, one, my, you know, our youngest kid mm-hmm. is a hockey player. And I had one of the mothers of a fellow player who was a school teacher come up to me one day and said, hey, Chris, you know, I got to share something with you. I've got Leon. Leon was the oldest child of the nine children that landed in Rutland. And at that point, she was, I think, in sixth grade, maybe fourth grade, fourth, mm-hmm. fifth, or sixth. And the teacher came to me and said, Chris, you know, I just want to thank you. And I said, why? She goes, because when Leon came into that class, she was welcomed by all of the other kids in the class and she said she she transformed that classroom just because of the love that the other kids were showing for her 
And she said she was the best thing that happened to her as a teacher with the impact she had on her classroom. And what is a dirty, rotten shame is the impact of that one kid on that one classroom would have been replicated with every single classroom where there was every single kid going in, you know, with every kid that was joined who was, uh, who was sharing. Mm -hmm. And so basically I'll say that Donald J robbed our community of hundreds of those interactions that would have occurred over his four years as president. And the community is much better for having those three families here. If, if the classrooms are better and the kids are better, mm-hmm. if they had a good experience from it, then we know it would have replicated what happened in the early, the early 1900s and when, when the Southern and Eastern Europeans showed up. Did they have challenges when they showed up? Yeah, they did. That's why my dad, you know, the son of Greek immigrants, he played with all the Jewish kids and the Italian kids because the parents of the good old Anglo-Saxons who were here wouldn't let their kids play with those people. You know, but that had changed. And while lots of adults in the community had a problem with refugee resettlement, and uh, as I said, the only word I can use is ugly, in a very ugly way, their kids didn't feel that way and still don't feel that way. And that's where the change is made. You know, it sounds hokey, it sounds goofy, but hey man, that's the, I do not like the term, our kids are our future, but by goddamn golly, the kids were the ones that understood it when the Syrian kids showed up in their classroom. In spite of what the parents were thinking. Yeah, that was that was a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I definitely agree with you. You know, one of the most beautiful things about being in a community where there's multiple cultures, where there's multiple backgrounds, is that it makes it so that everyone has a greater understanding of different populations and I am really sorry that Rutland wasn't able to have that because of the policies that were put in place during the initiative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's What's also unfortunate is the greatest mm-hmm. and most vocal opponents in Rutland to refugee resettlement, mm-hmm. like Don Chaffee, spelled C-H-I-O-F-F-I, mm-hmm. is the fact that uh, a lot of those folks who were the most opposed to refugee resettlement, they were the folks with vowels on the end of their name. And they had forgotten where they had come from. They had forgotten how their parents were treated or grandparents were treated when they moved here in, you know, between 1880 and 1920. And that's why, you know, somebody like my dad didn't forget that. And a bunch of other people in the community didn't forget that. But that's what, that's a really screwed up thing, Anusha, is the people who forgot it were the ones who were, whose own family, whose fathers, mothers, grandparents were the ones who were ostracized in the community, you know, a hundred years ago. And they didn't, and too many people didn't even learn the lessons of what their parents and grandparents experienced. That's the nature of, you know, you're looking at things globally here for the podcast. That's the nature of the friggin' world is two generations later, everything is forgotten. Whether it's Holocaust denialism or 
whether it's granite and marble workers who were used for their backs and their arms and the work they provided and not thanked well enough by the by the community for what they did and this is you know it's just everything old is new again it's just that with each iteration we hope that the lesson sticks a little bit better than it did the previous time right. i don't know if that i don't know if that's pollyannish if that's dealing with something that's not reality but i would hope that with each iteration of nativism we have and we're going through it this country again right now that when it comes back again in another two generations when it's the next other that shows up here in the united states maybe a maybe fewer people respond the way we saw people respond and hopefully initiatives like this our podcast and then the support system that you've been describing in Rutland hopefully initiatives like that ensures that future thank you again for sharing all of this information it's really impactful i'm sure to our listeners and just hearing about it i feel like i've learned a lot already what's wacky is with the arrival of the afghan refugee with the arrival of the new syrian family last week with the arrival of you a you know several ukrainian families in the community zero pushback by the community it's mind numbing and i think it's a good thing the people who were so crazily opposed to it irrationally opposed to it 6 years ago it's crickets now including including the cat who beat me in 2017 who ran on a platform of lawyers is an asshole and he brought in these dole and he brought in these dirty refugees he hasn't said anything mm-hmm. about refugee resettlement uh in the last 12 months as it's cranked back up and new of anyone else in the community right. and that's good that's good i'm glad yeah yeah no that's that's incredible that's incredible progress i'm really happy that has changed the reaction of the community in being divided and i was wondering so we talked a little bit about how when you were mayor you were republican and i was wondering if you could talk more about how your republican identity and pro refugee stance maybe conflicted or complemented each other well i think it would be safe to say that you, you've got to look at the vermont political system in mm-hmm. order to really understand it what is considered a democrat in vermont mm-hmm. is much more to the left of democrats throughout the country there is a very active progressive party with a capital p in vermont which is way 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 left or way liberal mm-hmm. and and the republicans in vermont until the advent of donald j effing trump were pretty much it was it was vermont republicans were pretty damn close to national republicans running up to this last decade. So, while I had some relatively conservative views, I by example, you know, if you look at those the touch points, I was I was never what would be considered pro-life. I was mm-hmm. always considered pro-choice. I never had an issue with refugees, immigrants, new Americans at all and so 
but while I did have that R next to my name, it's still in Vermont, it's still an R. And, you know, some of the people who identify as R now in the state of Vermont with an R next to their name, they really are the, the Trumpian nativist Republicans. To the point where most moderate, well, in Vermont, be considered moderate Republicans now, just regular old Republicans. They, the party, the party is completely fractured. A Republican governor, Phil Scott, isn't even supported by most of the local Republican committees because they consider him too far left. And the individuals who are that, you know, hardcore conservative. Republicans in the mold of Mitch McConnell or McCarthy or Trump or DeSantis, those people probably couldn't get elected in Vermont statewide office. I'm sure of it because mm-hmm. they're, they're too divisive and are... Just way too crazy. I'm just going to say it outright. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, I took that R off of my name when I ran for mayor because in Rutland politics, uh, when I say politics with a a capital P, it's nonpartisan. Anybody runs for the board of aldermen, there's no letter next to their name on the ballot or on their campaign or on their campaign documents. It's it's just everyone has no letter next to their name in local politics in Vermont. The only time you get letters next to your name is when you're running for the legislature. Right. And that's where, you know, frankly, it's needed just to have a process and a system. But for myself, trying to answer your question, now that I've set the stage for what R's and D's are in Vermont, I can tell you I would never run again. Mm-hmm. If I were to run again, and I never will, but in some fancy world were I to run for office, I would not have an R next to my name ever again. And people who are still my friends, but who identify as Republicans and who were my colleagues in 2005, 2006 in the legislature, well, a number of those folks are still my friends and will continue to be friends. They supported the people who wanted to kick my happy ass out of office mm-hmm. and they did not support refugee resettlement vocally. At best, many of them kept their heads down and said nothing because the environment was so fractured and divided. They didn't want to alienate, you know, quote, their constituency, unquote. And, uh, you know, that's, that's unfortunate. No one should have to do that in local state politics it's it's just unfortunate that people feel they have to have that party identity and even if they supported refugee resettlement felt like they had to keep their mouths shut about it right so i was wondering you mentioned how in the earlier years of your career you didn't have really any problem having a Republican identity because it wasn't as divided as it is now. So I was wondering, you know, because the refugee movement has now 
become more of a democratic initiative. Is there any way that you can think of to make it so that Republicans could now conceivably support it more despite the divide? Perfect mm-hmm. question. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Also, if there is a politician out there, whether an R next name, D or P next their name, and they feel that they can't support refugee resettlement, all they have to do is look at the data. All they have to do is look at the stories. The fact is that there's not a thriving and upcoming community in the Northeast United States. You know, when I'm talking all the way from Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, all the way over to downstate New York and New Jersey, where there's not a thriving new American population. That's the reality of it. And it's, it's for the same reasons that I, for practical the ported refugee resettlement because throughout the entire country you know the birth rates are crashing the unemployment rate mm-hmm. is has crashed and the people who are taking the jobs are the new americans right. that's that's who we need and that's what happened again that's the lesson of the 19th to the 20th century so to answer your question directly any politician <laughs> If they have a problem with refugee resettlement, they should just look at the data, look at the information, look to see where the successes are. And if they don't do that, it's because they don't want to piss off their base. It's that simple. You know, the the data are clear. The data are clear. Mm -hmm. And when you ask, you know, how can people overcome it? They just need to overcome, the politicians need to overcome their own ignorance and their own determination to get reelected, and that's the problem when it, you know you want to talk about the super takeaway from the microcosm of the Rutland story is too many people and i would say the vast majority of people who run for elected office are too goddamn worried about getting reelected. They're more worried about getting reelected than they are about doing the right thing. And the the paradox, I don't know if paradox or irony is the right word, but the reason people want to get reelected is so they can say, so they can make a difference. Well, when you're going to cash in on all that political capital to make a difference, you, you, you need to do it. You need to cash in on that political capital, damn torpedoes, and do the right thing. But too many people, and I just, I just don't understand the mentality of it, so good luck getting another politician on here who can. Why do people want to get reelected right. if they're not going to do anything of substance when they're in office? So that's my frustration. I think that's one of the major takeaways is anyone who looks at refugee resettlement as good versus bad for their community, whether it's a local municipality, a neighborhood, or a state, or a country, should just do not just the right thing, but do what's good for their community. Mm -hmm. And embracing new Americans is what's good for the community. It was true in the mid-1800s when the Irish and the Chinese came. It was true in the turn of the century when all the Eastern and Southern Europeans came, 
The only time it wasn't true is when folks from Europe showed up in the Americas and basically committed genocide. That's the only time that new Americans fucked everything up is when, when they first arrived here. After that, any new Americans that showed up provided great opportunities for society at large because they wanted to work, they were willing to work, and they did work, and they contributed to society in countless ways. And whether that's an Italian or a Jew showing up in Rutland in 1920 or a Syrian family that shows up in 2017, it's the same story. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, certainly, you know, just having someone who can give the perspective of feeling the political divide is is really impactful, especially to our podcast, because we haven't been able to give that perspective yet. And yeah, it's just, it's very worthy. I only have one more question. I was wondering, you mentioned that the uh, initiative has gotten back up in Rutland of resettling refugees. So can you talk more about how that was able to get back up after being shut down by the former president? And then how we as a podcast or any of our listeners, how they can help, whether that means like donating or if there's just any way we can support that initiative. Yeah, great. Two great questions. One is that when it was cranked back up here in Rutland, it was just put on the back burner during Trump administration. It's that simple. Because of the success of the families that are here, it did prove the concept that Rutland had the housing capacity, the language capacity, and the jobs capacity to accept refugees. And comparing it to the Burlington, Vermont area and the Chittenden County, which all the communities that surround Burlington, for decades, refugees have been recognized in Chittenden County as a real economic engine. And to the point where in Chittenden County now, around Burlington, Vermont, they don't have the housing capacity. They still have the jobs capacity, but the housing is really, really super difficult. Mm-hmm. And the folks in the refugee resettlement community, you know, as far as the nonprofit, recognize that. So they were looking to continue to expand outside of the Burlington area, provided people could be safe and people could thrive. So that's why it was cranked back up is because refugee resettlement never was going to fully go away. And when the administration changed... And we had the issues in Afghanistan, the issues in Ukraine, and the ongoing issues in Syria, as well as throughout many other countries in the world. There was a recognition that it was just going to be a matter of time before refugees started to show back up in Rutland again. And, you know, there's a lot of us who are just delighted as all get out that the idiots that were screaming, no, 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 basically have crawled back under the rocks. And that's mm-hmm. a good thing. So now you can take advantage of it as long as we continue to get, you know, the, the population showing up. Mm-hmm. And what was the second half of the question? What can we do as a podcast or what can our listeners do to support uh, the initiative? I would say two things. Mm-hmm. One, find out what's going on in their own communities 
and find out how they can make a difference in their communities supporting new Americans. That, mm-hmm. That's one where they can, they can do one of two things, get involved and they may not even know there's a way to get involved right now. And it doesn't take a lot of time, you know, once a month, bringing a family to a grocery store once a month, bringing somebody to a medical appointment that makes a huge difference or, you know, tutoring or mentoring a kid mm-hmm. is, helping a young first-generation American navigate the college application process. There are college groups that do that because it's recognized from the data that people who are first in their family to go to college, it's difficult to get through all the paperwork. And someone who's been through it before, hey, if you really want to make a difference to one person who you can touch find a kid who is the child of a refugee that is daunted by the college application process and anybody that's even touched a FAFSA (laughs) a FAFSA application knows what that means so that's how people can help in their own community and that's the way to make the biggest impact but if they don't have the time if they feel they don't have the skill, resources, or personality to really you know, interact with folks, they can find the Refugee Resettlement Organization. There's 11 of them that, that operate under a Department of State contract, and they can donate to those specific non-governmental organizations okay. if they're looking to, to donate. But I would say find out who the refugees are, approach the Refugee Resettlement Organization. They all have volunteer coordinators and say, hey, what's the list of things that can be done? And volunteer coordinators, anyone that's worth their salt, has a list of things ready to go and say, okay, let's have a quick conversation about what you think you can contribute, and we'll plug you in. Thank you so much for giving us that advice. I'll definitely include the links to the Refugee Resettlement Organizations when I publish this episode. Thank you for advising that. My last question, I suppose, more of just like a space to talk. If there was something that we didn't cover in the interview that you would like to let the listeners know, go ahead. Boy, I'm trying to think. I didn't prep for it, Mm -hmm. so I'm sure there are some really important points I missed. I know I hit the capacity issue as far as language. You know, that's a nuts and bolts technocrat issue, but it's really important for people to understand is why you know some communities are refugee resettlement communities and others aren't mm-hmm. an example is woodstock vermont very hoity-toity mm-hmm. very liberal so they all want to do the right thing but very cake eaterish you know did you use the term cake eater you know what that means no i don't a cake eater is think of oh think of the other usc think of all the rich friggin california kids that go to usc of university of southern california mm-hmm. those are cake eaters high income white people your basic old school wasp white anglo-saxon protestant <laughs> and so there it's a tourist destination in woodstock vermont tourist destination and retirement community for people from down country, from New York, Boston, who got a shit ton of money that want their little piece of Vermont. 
They wanted to be a refugee resettlement community, which is great, you mm -hmm. know, but there were no entry level jobs, certainly no affordable housing. And this is, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of it is those three areas of capacity are required for any community to be a refugee resettlement community. So I touched on that. Sorry, I'm just I'm just repeating myself. You're to totally see if fine. Anything else that I'm that I'm really missing that's super important. I covered Rutland Welcomes, which was, as I said, the thing I'm proudest of is had something I had nothing to do with, which was what the community did to support the refugees. For people who ask, you know, what could I have done different? Could I have had public hearings sooner? Could I have brought people in? And I had been very clear that we never would have gotten refugee resettlement off the ground mm -hmm. had I had a completely open and transparent public discussion because we would have arrived at the same place, mm -hmm. but we would have arrived there six months earlier and we probably wouldn't have seen any families ever show up. It would have gotten scuttled before it even got off the ground, mm -hmm. if Amila and I didn't do it the way we did it. And people say, you know, so what could you have done different? And, you know, what's the best case you can make for refugee resettlement? And frankly, I can't make a good case for refugee resettlement. Who makes the best case for refugee resettlement are the people themselves. Right. Because once they're a real human being mm -hmm. and not just a number or a Syrian or a subject of a political discussion at the national level mm -hmm. and they're real people, that changes people's minds. Right. That's, that's why, you know, all those Italians and Greeks and Poles and Jews who showed up at the turn of the century that's why they are not just part of our community. They are the community now because the people make the best argument for refugees and for new Americans are the refugees and new Americans themselves and the immigrants themselves. Once they demonstrate that they're real people and they want nothing more to be given a chance to live a full life and to give their children whatever their children need to succeed, that, you know, that defines what refugee mm -hmm. settlement is all about and what being a new American is all about, mm -hmm. is just improving their lot in life and they are their own best advocates mm -hmm. that demonstrate their value by their own actions. That's a really good point. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I, I don't think I have any other questions for you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, follow along with our podcast on all podcast listening platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please follow our social media, including our Instagram, and feel free to contact us at the email listed in the down bar.